Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. You know those people who float in and out of your life, but you always feel connected to? My guest today, Megan McNally, is one of those people for me. We worked together in the early aughts for a social enterprise that put technology know-how into the hands of nonprofits. That was the tagline, the wavy tagline. We wrote a lot of grants, and I will never forget reading the one Megan wrote because it brought me to tears. And it was about technology, for crying out loud. But Megan has such a way of painting pictures with words that evoke so much more than I expected. And by the way, I had been doing the grant writing, and Megan said, hey, I want to give that a go. And here was this grant proposal, and it was it was like a work of art. I will, I just will never forget it. And it was so humbling, but in, in a really good way. It's, you know, in that way where when you see somebody who does something better than you, and that's like really cool, that's what that, that was. And so Megan has gone on to become a lawyer and an entrepreneur and has graced many a stage and many spaces with her grit and wit. I'm so glad you'll get to hear from her. She's, she's just she's a shining example of someone who has used marketing in all sorts of different ways to change the world. So super cool that she's joining us today. I love to hear your thoughts. We honestly could have just, this is a pretty long episode. We could have just kept talking and talking and talking because there's so much in her mind and in her heart. So I hope you'll stick with it and would love to continue the conversation over in the Marketing for Good Facebook group. So join me there, okay? All right, ready? Let's do it. My guest today is Megan McNally. So officially, Megan is a lawyer and strategic advisor to purpose-driven people and organizations. She has spent more than two decades as an organizational leader, consultant, educator, and public speaker, including executive roles with the NPower Network, where we met, Washington State Bar Association of Foundation, and Pacific Science Center. In 2017, Megan founded the F-Bomb Breakfast Club, a peer support community of over 3,000 female founders and women business owners and was named one of the most influential people of 2018 by Seattle Magazine. Because she is such a badass, she has been featured in GeekWire, the Puget Sound Business Journal, Seattle Lawyer, and more. Megan, to me, is the very best and kindest kind of rabble rouser and provocateur, and really, truly one of the most badass women I have ever had the privilege to meet. Megan, I am downright delighted to welcome you to the show. Well, that is very generous and very kind of you, <laughs> Erica, because of course I think of you as such a mentor and such a role model for me. So this is a joy. I feel like at some point in this interview, I might cry. Well, it's not a very worthwhile interview if there's not some crying <laughs> at some point. It I mean, might happen. I just want to get real. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How are things? How are you doing? 
you know, I always think it's important to put a time stamp on interviews right now. So we are on day 47,386,000. Just approximately. <laughs> I'm home in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I am doing okay. I feel like I am, you know, I'm wrapped in a whole lot of privilege. So I, you know, feel like I am pretty well supported in the situation that I'm in. I'm locked in with my wife, who I love dearly and have, you know, discovered that we still really enjoy each other, even after being locked in together, which is no small thing. No small I'm thing. Okay. Yeah. Good. How are you? I've started replying in the following way this hour, like in this moment, I'm great. I'm talking to you. That's amazing. You know, a few hours ago, maybe a totally different headspace. That's the, that's the ride right now. I think. I think we're all on a ride right now. And, and, and something that has really just become obvious for me is we're all on a ride, but we're not necessarily all having the same emotions at the same time. And so you're right. In one hour, you can be filled with just this enormous gratitude. And then, you know, somebody in your same social circle is experiencing deep grief in that in that moment. And an hour later, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, there's something universal, but we're also having our own u- unique experience right now. I mean, that is one of the, the most interesting things about it is I think we are seeing some universals around humanity. I think we are seeing other things amplified the darker sides of culture and society and being human. And also it's a moment of being hyper individualistic. And I just, (laughs) that that individualism is might be the death of us here in the U S you know, there's a flip, there's a flip side to all of these things, but you know, I don't want to jump ahead because I actually don't even know what you're going to ask me. So I don't know that I am jumping ahead, but I have been thinking a whole lot about both the opportunities and the challenges of marketing and communicating with audiences right now, when at any given moment, there's such a range of things that people are experiencing. So let's go there. It's always tough. Like marketing is always a bit of a gamble. Like you can do all the research you want. And and if you have the resources, definitely do it. But a lot of marketing is like trial and error and all the rest of it, as you well know. And I feel like right now it's like, sure, let's try that. It could work, but I ha- you just you have no idea the moment that somebody is in. And that, you know, for the most part, that's always been the case. And one of the things that you know you and I have grappled with together and also talked about in various settings is this funny thing where, you know, let's use nonprofits as an example, because lots of listeners work for nonprofits and they they think about like sending on a newsletter as if the person on the receiving end is constantly in donor mode. Mm-hmm. But of course they will be receiving that while thinking deep thoughts about charity. And I always say like, no, they're not. Get real. They're like in the middle, like think about receiving anything right now, like f- anything physical. One, you're like, oh my God, do I touch it? But two, and this I think is not super new. Like you're in the middle of your kitchen. You're thinking like, what am I going to make for dinner? They're really not in donor mode, right? Which means you've got to bring the joy factor at a pretty high level or the disruption factor or something. And now it's like, how do you make those guesses? Yeah. Well, first of all, just to validate that, I'll share with you that, you know, yesterday I got a, a solicitation in the mail from an organization that I love dearly. And it just so everything about the the envelope, <laughs> the message inside annoyed me to my bone. Like I was like, I'm not going to give to you today. And this is an organization I love, 
So there is some risk in some of those gambles. I tend to think of, we should preface all of this with, I'm not a marketing expert. Marketing is a is a piece of and related to and a part of you know the work that I do, but I'm not a not a marketing expert by any means. But I tend to think of it as the 80-20 rule as in normal times being good, right? Like 80% of the time you're using known channels and and a, and a tone that's familiar to your audience. And the messages that you've got evidence are going to resonate, right? So like 80% of it is known and you leave 20% for experimentation and innovation. In general, that's a good rule of thumb for all kinds of things. Right now, I feel like it's probably more like 60-40, right? We should be a little bit more experimental in what we're doing. So one, I don't want any listeners to be like, well, never mind. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm just going to, I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to go dark and wait it out till we're on the other side of all this. Like really, please, if you're listening to this, do not have that be what you're hearing. I hope that what folks will hear is, yes, there are a lot of unknowns and risk sounding trite, but, and it's a really good time to try some stuff because you don't know, you don't know. And so, you know. Why yeah. not try some stuff? That's actually true. And I should absolutely clarify. So first of all, an organization whose mission I love, who I've supported for years, I'm going to continue supporting right. for years, but I would never stop because of a bad fundraising appeal. <laughs> right. So, so yes, I don't think people should stop doing what you're doing. Like, I think the risk that people are going to turn away from you is actually quite low. In this case, it was more that it read like a campaign that had been designed long before what's happening now. And so it was just so missed the moment, you know, that as a fundraiser, as a professional, somebody who's been a professional fundraiser, I really felt it like, <laughs> who did this get past? Well, you know? I mean, practically speaking, so on the show, we talk a lot about that external execution is predicated on like solid strategy and internal alignment. You know, like what you see, you know, what you receive is like the tip of the iceberg, but you need all that internal alignment. And so I feel like part of what's happening is people are, because we are on day 4,790 gajillion of this, it's what it feels like. I think there are folks who are like, yeah, I don't have it in me to tweak that. I realize it may sound tone deaf, but you know what? I'll be able to check it off my to-do list. And there's some, there's something very legitimate in that. Like you got it out the door. Okay. Yeah. Like we're all doing okay. <laughs> We're just all doing our best. We're just yeah. all doing our best. So I think that's happening. Yeah. You talk a lot about failure, something I love about you. So I saw this quote from Ariana Huffington. She said, failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of success. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is no success without failure. I think we can think of no example. Will you talk a little bit about Diana TV? And I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, as I do, to prepare. And you, the little blurb under that for that time was, we made a passionate run at launching the first digital streaming network dedicated to women's sports. We swung for the fences, missed by a mile, and learned an awful lot. I knew I was going to tear up at some point. It's like already. So will you tell us about Diana TV? Like, what did it mean to swing for the fences? You know, what did you learn? Yeah. So I am many things professionally. A Media executive had never been one of them. <laughs> I had never worked in sports professionally, but I am a passionate sports fan. There's a whole lot of sports that I love, 
And the sports that I love the most are the hardest to find and watch. And I grew up being told that women's sports in particular are not commercially viable. And I don't believe that. I don't buy that. And I reached a point in my life a couple of years ago where I just honestly, Erica, I think, you know, there's sometimes this just comes with age where I'm like, I'm just not buying what you're selling anymore. That there's plenty of evidence there that women's sports are commercially viable. It's doable. Others have tried it. And and I just decided to take a big swing at it. So taking a big swing in this case meant, you know, I'm a lawyer who worked for more than 20 years in the nonprofit sector, worked in philanthropy. What did I know about sports or media? But I decided to go for it anyway and to try to build a streaming network that would be focused on women's sports. And, you know, there were lots of people who said, try small, maybe try to come up with an innovative Instagram channel and get a bunch of followers. And I'm like, I'm not here to play small. You know, I I I have a big vision and I'm going to go for that big vision. And I did. And I built a team of people around me who believed in that big vision too. And we gave it everything that we had. We weren't successful. <laughs> but, but it was, you know, I mean what I say in my bio. It's like, yeah, we we swung hard. We missed a lot, meaning we fell flat. And Everything that we learned in that process has proved to be useful in some way. I learned extraordinary things about myself, about myself as a leader, about myself as a person. People involved with the project learned all kinds of things that have helped now support the projects that they're working on. So there were success in those, in that sense, how much we all learned from it. It's still not easy to watch women's professional sports yeah. the same way that it is to watch men's professional sports. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, when I think of you, your name comes uh, in a synonymous with storytelling. And of course, you were you are a two-time winner of the Moth Storytelling Competition. So this like officially, you know, proves that. Um, but it's true of how you did fundraising, how you did grant writing. I don't know. I assume that's how you do lawyering and strategizing and all the things you're doing today. Did that come naturally to you? Have you always been kind of a storyteller and I'm always curious if people who at least I consider to be amazing storytellers think that that's an inherent skill, you know, something that's inherent to you or if it's a learned skill. I think it's probably both. For me, I honestly think I inherited it from my grandmother. So my grandmother, Marie Patricia O'Boyle McNally. Um, oh, my. Yeah. Um, we called her nanny. I had a very close relationship with my nanny and she was the best storyteller ever. <laughs> you know? um, and I think that I inherited that from her and I didn't know that I did, but I can tell you that as a kid, I exaggerated a lot and got a lot of joy <laughs> exaggerating, you know? Um, and so, you know, at a, at a young age, I think it was a thing where it's like, there's something about I don't know if you're telling a story and people are really leaning into that story and they're curious and they're compelled by what you're talking about, like that connection, there's something really heartwarming about that connection that I, I think I loved at an early age. But what's funny is I think I was well into adulthood before I ever heard anybody talk about storytelling. Now it's, you know, oh, it's now, a buzzword. 
now it's a buzzword. Everybody's yes, a storyteller. Yes. I think Facebook will even label you if you're a visual storyteller or this kind of storyteller. It's not something I set up like a lot like fundraising. It's not like I ever set out like I'm going to be a storyteller, but I, I grew up in the presence of a really great storyteller. And so I think some of, you know, some of it comes naturally from that experience. But I will say as somebody who has taken the stage to tell a story and has you know, I've stood in front of some pretty big audiences telling stories. There is also skill that you can learn. You know, there's an arc to a story. There's important things to know about a story that, you know, how how you start it and the fact that you have to wrap it up at the end and the fact that there should be some kind of a crux that people really buy into in the middle. Like, you know, so, so I would say just like fundraising, it's part art and part science. And having an ability to blend those two, I think it's pretty powerful. Where do you see people blowing it with storytelling? (laughs) Number one is the story is not your own. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there is no story more compelling than somebody's personal story or, or a story from their personal perspective. So telling somebody else's story, for me, telling somebody else's story is really risky and it's, and it's much harder to do than telling a personal story. And this is important, of course, for organizations when we're, when we're always trying to tell stories that are illustrative of what we do. So how do you get into that really authentic space when you're not telling your own story? And then the other thing I think is that, and maybe sometimes this goes hand in hand with that, but is trying too hard. <laughs> you know, like not every story have to have this like grand drama and this, you know, poignant end and pithy things in the middle. Like sometimes we just really, really overdo it when just a plain hold from the heart story, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, you know, it's often just for me far more compelling. Yeah. I mean, the word authenticity gets also so overused right now. <sighs> Authentic storytelling. And for as much as they say it in that tone of voice, like that's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. If you want it to connect, I, I really think you have to go there. I think there's a tension that is worth noting where you have the person or people within the organization who are tasked with telling the good story, you know, whatever mm-hmm. role that may be. And so off they go to tell the good story. They sit in an organizational context and that organization will have its own story. It will have its own brand personality is your voice. You know, how are you going to translate that your personal take or tone and have that resonate at the organizational level? I think it can be tricky. I think it can be really tricky. Um, And that's where it goes back to that being a mix of art and science, because you can be a really great storyteller generally, and it still take some work to do that for the organization and in the, you know, in a way that matches the organization's brand, you know, merging, you could do a whole season, Erica, on personal brand. Oh, yes. Organizational brand. Yes. And how they align and what happens when they don't and what happens when somebody comes in and tries to bring too much personal brand to the organization brand or there's because there's a lot to explore. this is new. I mean, if we index back to, you know, let's just say 20 years ago when you and I were, you know, doing some of this stuff for NPower, 
you know, I think it was a time when sure, you know, that was an, uh, an environment where you could show up, you know, and bring your full self, but we still had like a, a there was just a brighter personal professional. And, you know, the advent of social media, um, we all are so much more, I think, forced to be one, like those lines are just very, very blurry. Um, and that, you know, that's good and bad. We could have a whole conversation about that, but for sure people, understand what the idea of personal brand is and different generations feel differently about how they can show up with that mm-hmm. in different contexts and environments. Yeah. It, it's, it's messy. Yeah. Social media has been a game changer in a way that I think only, I, I don't want this to sound pejorative, but I think that only people old enough not to have grown up in the time of social media can probably really sort of have that perspective of just how much of a game changer it is about that. And the idea of personal brand is, you know, I mean, yeah, 20 years ago, maybe we would talk about the, an executive profile. There was, you know, there might be an executive that, I mean, an expectation that the chief executive of an organization or the president of a major board had to have a personal reputation that aligned with the organization. But it certainly wasn't something where we talked about where like every level of the organization of who you are when you leave the door says something about, you know, the organization. There there was definitely a different kind of line then than there is mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, which is a double-edged sword. It's, I was just going to pull up some some interesting stats here for you, if you would indulge me for just a minute, because at the F-Bomb Breakfast Club, our next meeting topic is about personal brand and mm. how it relates to building a business. Just a side, would you indulge me just a quick oh, sidebar? Yeah. And tell tell listeners more about the F-Bomb Breakfast Club. Yeah. So the F-Bomb Breakfast Club is a peer support community for women business owners and female founders. So we're a group of over 3,100 women Most of us are here in the Seattle area, but we have women actually in 11 different countries now, which is a whole lot of fun. Um, And a whole lot of U.S. states, yeah. Um, And we support each other. So this is not a top-down model. It's not an expert teaching everybody how to build a business. Um, Instead, we've sort of set the table for women to come together and help each other learn how to build successful businesses and how to survive and hopefully be happy doing it, (laughs) which is no small you know, no small tasks. Right. Um, so we have, so among the things we do, we have um, a monthly meeting. It used to be in person. Of course, now it is virtual. But on the first effing Friday of every month at the A crack of dawn <laughs> um, is when we have our, our monthly meeting. Um, and there's a different topic for each meeting. And our topic for the June meeting, like I said, is about personal brand and business. So what do you need to know as a founder these days? And so when we were getting ready for this meeting, these stats just really struck me because it doesn't matter whether you're in a for-profit business, a social sector business or government. I think this is true across the board. 82% of consumers say they're more likely to trust a brand if its CEO is active on social media. And sales reps who use social media outperform their peers by 78%. That data is really compelling to me in that it's not insignificant that how you're showing up in the world is impacting that organization or that business that you are trying to grow in whatever role you know you're in trying to trying to grow it. So one, 
that's fascinating. Two, where my mind goes with that is to like, okay, like you look at, let's, let's pick on Instagram here for a second. And, you know, so you scroll through your Instagram feed and we all know that a lot of those pictures are posed and they're filtered and all the rest of it. So I, do, I guess I'm just left, left this question of like, so how authentic to go back to that word or true or real, real, do you need to be and you're showing up on social media? Like, what does that look like? And, and if you're so curated, and I feel like there is a push, particularly for women, founders, leaders, a push towards being a little more curated, at least physically, um, because mm-hmm. of the social norms to look a certain way. And then you show up in person, like, how do you, how do you maintain fidelity between, between all of that? Such great questions. And you're right, sidebar that, you know, there are stories that make the the actual news, like CNN ran a story about how interesting it is to see these male celebrities in quarantine and how cute it is that we can see their gray hair and their facial hair and their shaggy t-shirts. But we we have a very different expectation of women. Somehow right now, women are still expected to be successful professionals and homeschoolers and, and doing most of the housework and and still dressing fashionably and having their hair done and makeup you know while they're on video during the day these very un, unrealistic gender expectations but i think you know but back to your question about you know picking on instagram that 87% of consumers say they trust a brand more if the ceo is on social media only gives you one data point. What I'm really interested in and would be really interested in exploring is, and what if they don't like what they see there, right? What happened when Lululemon's CEO, you know, spoke publicly about how, you know, instead of it being a problem that Lululemon yoga pants turn out to be transparent, you know, his perception was, women shouldn't wear yoga pants you know what what kind of damage did that do to the business and is that can you repair that damage what happens what's going to happen to tesla if somebody doesn't rein in and cut elon musk off from social media here soon like what are the real you know what is with elon musk i mean to use that what i what was going on in my brain was if you can show up fully, truly who you are, and that is representative of your of your company, actually, there's there's a great efficiency in that because you're like, this is who we are. You either like it or not. And I, you know, I talk a lot, borderline preach about the idea of just being radically authentic so that you can like attract your true believers. Because you know, if you try to mute whoever you are, and then people are like, oh, but I thought you know, you just kind of end up pitching down the middle, which is, you know, you, we all know, like, that's just, that's not very compelling. And so then there's some, you know, it just takes longer. Whereas if you're like, this, this, this is it. There is an efficiency to that. And, you know, if you want fans, you know, I'm thinking of, I always think of Harley Davidson because they're such an easy example. Um, but Elon Musk, I would say like, I think that there are some folks who are like, he's so well out there, but I kind of dig it. You know, like he's him, like, like it or not, he's him. And you don't have to, you don't have to real wonder about it. Yeah. I kind of appreciate it. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on the being radically real, you know, splitting the difference on 
anything never works. That was one of our tough lessons with Diana Sports TV. You can't, mm. you can't split the difference. But I do. There's something to be said for being radically real, and there's some risk. Yep. And so oh, yeah. you're going to manage that risk. And um, and there's great examples of it. So when I think of you know how important it is, when I think about this alignment between personal brand and organizational brand, I think the organizations that do it truly wrong. Are, or if you know if there's truly a wrong, it's that like the PR department has tried to craft what looks like the personal social media account for the CEO, and you all know damn this happens with politicians a lot too, right? Like and you know just damn well it's not them, it's not really them, or every message that comes out is promotional instead of yeah, seeing yeah the, yeah you could feel it yeah you totally can you know who I'm curious about I'm curious about the CEO of T-Mobile. Does he manage his own Twitter account? I want to know. He does. And sidebar, when the F-Bomb Breakfast Club held its first meeting and GeekWire wrote about it, John Ledger, CEO of T-Mobile, retweeted it and said he wished that he could come because it sounded like a badass morning. And I responded on social media and said, sorry, you know, it's women only, but send donuts. And he did. He had his executive assistant send us donuts to our second meeting. So I think he's authentically, you know, and I've, I've met him. We were, we were um, finalists for GeekWire Awards the same year. He won. I didn't. But, you know, got a chance to meet and just chat with him briefly there. And, you know, I, th- I think. Real deal. I think you're really seeing him. He's a little, you know, <laughs> really. Doesn't hold back that one. Slow cooker on Sundays in his kitchen. And I will say he's, you know, he, I think that's a great example because sort of like he has a brand and he's out there and he's on social media a lot. Um, and you get to see that he's, you know, he's a quirky, he's a quirky guy. That's real. His passion for his company and the product and his, the customers, I think is very real. And yet he still doesn't, you know, he he doesn't go so far <laughs> out of the lanes that it's worrisome. You know what I mean? Like you don't see him diving into political conversations or, you know, or, you yeah. know, conversations that are just like so outside the scope of what you might be thinking about when you're thinking about your telecommunications. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and so I think that matters. There's, pro- you know, there's probably, I would bet, a really smart team around him who's saying, you can totally keep being you. We're just too yeah. mindful. Yeah. These, there's a couple guardrails. So let's just pay attention just to don't those. Go, don't go that far to the Pay side. attention to those guardrails, which Elon Musk, it seems, does not have. Hmm. Like, you know, things that might be in violation of, I don't know, SEC regulations, for example, you'd think would be a guardrail that somebody would put up for Elon Musk not to drive over. But. I do want to note that it's easier to be radically real. And I think that uh, the the more privilege you have, the more power you have, the more latitude you're given on these things. So 100% white men in particular get so much license to be quirky and there's risk um, in being quirky. Another great conversation we had at a, um, an, F-bomb meeting a couple of months ago was about the, uh, you might have seen this story, this amazing founder, um, who had a product at Target, unveiled at Target, and Target advertised it during um, Black History Month in February um, because she's a Black American company founder. And her product is a product that she said very specifically 
was inspired by her desire to serve Black girls. And customers were outraged and they called it racist and they called Target racist for, um, you know, for hosting this project product. And so I think there is, I think there is risk privilege, you know, the more privilege we have, the more risk we're allowed to take. And I think that's something to be incredibly mindful of. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the other thing is we think about social media, you know, FOMO is real. FOMO is real regardless. And social media feeds that. And I just, I think that that's one one of the downsides with marketing in general and social media in particular is that it really foments anxiety, which, you know, global pandemic already, like the baseline of anxiety is high, horrible for people's mental health, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm just left with kind of like, okay, well, short of like getting off social media entirely. So I've gone through times where I just have not been on Facebook at all. I just deleted all my social media apps off my phone because it was just, it was too tempting. And I could feel myself getting kind of sucked in, not in a good way. It wasn't serving anything. And yet for all its downsides, it has upsides in terms of connecting with, you know, clients and audience and customers and donors and volunteers and all the rest of it. Have you seen any examples or do you have any thoughts about you know, how to not, because part of marketing for good is that it needs to be good through and through. It needs to be good for the people doing it within your organization. And it needs to be good for the people on the receiving end of it. Like, I think we, you know, we have a, a responsibility in that way as people who can't, who do and can't shape narrative. So have you seen anybody doing that well or mindfully? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people actually doing it well. Ruchika Tolshin, is one person who I follow religiously on social media. So if you don't know Rutfika, she is the author of um, The Diversity Advantage, which was published before the wave of <laughs> diversity books, you know, that we now see. So she was really early in leading the conversation, particularly in the business world. Um, she was a, a journalist turned author who really found a voice with the business community and with executive business leaders around diversity. And so she now is, you know, she's an author, she's a speaker, she's a consultant, a communications consultant with organizations. And she's somebody who, if you pay attention to her on social media, she, number one, chooses her channel. Right. So like Very know important. what audience, yeah, know what audience you're speaking to and where they are. In truth, for, for my business life, my business world, my clients aren't on Instagram. The, you know, that's not where the audience that I need to speak to is from a business perspective. So if I'm on Instagram, it's I'm posting pictures of my cats, the run that I went on or the food that I ate. That's it. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna that's your triad. <laughs> And it's my friends and family who care. Nobody else. Yeah. But, you know, so so she chooses her channels. So you will see her show up on LinkedIn and Twitter. And how she shows up is in the conversations that are relevant to the things that she does professionally. So if there is a conversation happening online or in the news that has to do with the role of diversity in business and why it matters for a business in order to be successful, for a business to thrive, why diversity matters. If there's a news story or conversation happening around it, she's in that conversation. So it's very rare that you see tweets or messages from her that are like, buy my book. Here's my latest article. Listen to my thing. Read my thing. 
And like that happens, but how she's showing up is present in conversations that matter. And so I think, you know, to me, that's one great example. Another one is Amy Nelson of The Riveter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Amy is the, the founder of The Riveter, um, which is a, a women-focused co-working space and community. And Amy is, you know, not only female founder and CEO of a company that's raised a lot of VC money, which is venture capital money, which is hard to do um, as a woman. She's also the mom of four young daughters who she had in successive order. And so she, if there's that's a hundred percent more little people than I have, and that's, I can only keep up with two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and now imagine being locked in with them all during a pandemic, um, because they're all under four, I think. I think it's like they're one, two, three, and four, or something like that. Yeah, super young. Um, and so Amy is also very intentional about where she is on social media. She is on Instagram. Her audience really is a millennial and Gen Z woman, and their Instagram is their place. So she is brilliant at how she uses Instagram stories, for example. She almost never talks about the Riveter. That's not the point. She talked about what it's like to be a working mom, about what it's like to be a, you know, a mom trying to build a company and raise money for a company while she's still breastfeeding one. And her oldest one is about to have the first day at childcare. And so the things that she's talking about are so real and relatable. And you will see her in her Instagram stories. You might see her on her treadmill trying to get her workout in at 4.30 in the morning because it's the only time to do it. Or her sitting on the floor of a bathroom pumping milk before she goes into pitch, you know, to an investor. And so it, it it's just a great example of like, know your audience, know where they are, and then be in the conversations that are relevant to those people, like just be in the relevant conversation. There's an undercurrent to this that I think is important to call out, which is a lot of folks, myself included at times, although now I'm getting older and so I don't worry about it quite as much, but it did happen when I launched this podcast is, is a latent fear or active fear of rejection. Oh yeah. Sure. And I feel like, you know, we talk about fear of missing out, FOMO, right? So that, that's one thing. But I really feel, and, and you know, when I work with organizations, I see this so much where they're like everywhere. And so, I mean, I would say a standard piece of advice I give is like, y'all got to give up a couple of those channels because you just, you can't do it well. And it doesn't make sense. Like it just, it doesn't really make sense. And, and you know, trying to figure out where you're going to be and being okay with it and going all in is brave. Yeah. It's brave. And we need bravery. We need brave. And and by the way, though, that's all well and good. I would say nonprofits in particular, I mean, there's a lot of lip service paid to like go for it and be brave. And then they're they are penalized oftentimes if it doesn't work out. Like, yay, if it does, but really penalized if it doesn't. And I see that with, you know, women-owned businesses and some, you know, definitely. So it's like, boy, being brave these days is it's it's hard. It's awe-inspiring. I mean, it's really, for folks who really do it in the way that you're talking about, it is awe-inspiring. We need as much of that as possible. Yeah, we really do. And I want to go back to this story of, of the, the target company that I was telling you about. Um, the company is called Honeypot. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, now you know yeah. the story of Honeypot. And so it was brave uh, of the founder, first of all, to launch her idea into the world and build her company. <laughs> like that takes bravery in and of itself. And then it takes bravery to tell the 
true story of what your inspiration is and who you care about serving that takes bravery. And immediately, you know, the, the first immediate wave of backlash was really harmful, right? Where all these target customers boycotted Target and called it racist and all this kind of stuff. But what beautifully happened right after that is that primarily women and led by black women came in beside that and said, oh, no, 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 we see her and we're going to lift her up. And they and her product sold out off the shelves of Target in a very short amount of time after that. And so I do still, like, even though there's risk, I do still think that there's reward on the other side of it. And I think bravery ends up being rewarded. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it does. And, you know, back to your point about, you know, there's this balance that we have to find between these two extremes. I think, you know, maybe at Empower, we used to call it that you got to find the good enough bucket, right? Like on oh, one the good end, enough bucket. I still refer to the good enough bucket. bucket. I do. It's a great I concept. A good, I use it all the time, right? Like on one end of the spectrum, there's perfect. You're never going to have the perfect marketing plan, the perfect strategy, the ideal CEO person, like you're not going to get perfect. And on the other end of the spectrum is just going out scattershot with no real intention or strategy and throwing too many things at the wall all at once to see what sticks. Somewhere in between, there is a thoughtful approach that is not just one person's idea. <laughs> right? So it's it's been grounded in some way or validated in some way by a handful of people at least who understand the brand and the audience that you're you know you're trying to reach. And then there's some and then some intentionally choosing like what what channels make sense for that? What are our natural channels for communicating? And then some bravery. <laughs> like first there's there's some intention first, then bravery. Bravery and, and like grieving. And there's a little bit of grief. If you're going to be true to this and you're going to be like, we can manage two channels, which I would say in general, there, there's not that many organizations that can rock a whole bunch of them. We think that, that we can, but really that's pretty tough. So then you have to like make room for, okay, we're going to grieve a little bit because we, we're not going to be on Facebook or we're not going to be on whatever, right? And that's healthy. Like I love magic paper. Do you ever do you work with magic paper? No, what it's is that? Oh, it's, oh it's, magic paper is so great. Um, Write it down. Yeah, magic paper. It's it's like the poof paper. So people use it different ways. I like to think of it, and I've used lots of different ways. But okay, the basic premise of magic paper is you light it on fire and it instantly evaporates. It literally goes poof. Yeah. Um. So I have used it to write down things that I want to let go of. Oh. You know that that aren't serving me anymore, and then also wishes. Like, you know, things I'm hoping for or things that I'm letting go of. I do this on New Year's. I didn't know there was magic paper for it. It probably takes a lot less time than than trying to get a piece of paper lit and burning in the rain. <laughs> and when I can get clients to 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 um, be game enough to, to do it, it's so cathartic, right? It's so cathartic because it like, oh, it just, it's like you just give it up to the universe, you know, you know give it up. Or, you know, whoever you're, the universe or God or the divine, you know, like whoever it is for you, I, I, I have no commentary on that. I'm good with all of it, but you're letting, you're giving it up. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever that higher power mm. is for you. So you mentioned, you brought up failure earlier and mentioned how I love to talk about failure. A really important part of failure is, is this grief and letting it go. 
If you've ever tried to build something that you truly believed in, whether it was a campaign or a product or an organization or a movement, and you really believed in it and you and you gave it your all, you gave it your best, and it doesn't work, it is human to go through a period of grieving it. There's a loss because you you saw it and it was real to you, right? If you're if you've ever tried to write that like perfect fundraising letter and you were convinced this was the thing that was going to bring it's back beautiful. Your, beautiful. Your, your donors who've skipped the past year, you just know that it's it and you send it out and it falls flat. You do go through a grief because you saw in your mind people getting the letter, opening it, reconnecting and running inside to go online and give like you saw it all and it's not going to happen. And you go through a period of grieving it. And I think you have to, you have to let yourself grieve it. Then you have to let it go. One part is natural. The grieving it is natural that comes and the letting it go, I think is a skill. That's, that's a thing that we have to, that leaders of organizations, I think have to practice. You know, we have to help and encourage organizationally. You have to lead by, by example on this. You demonstrate it. Yeah. You lead by example. You make intentional space for it. You make space to celebrate it. You know to make it a thing. But but I think so. The idea of this magic paper, I think, is just you know beautiful because like the idea was great. It's time to let it go, and it's okay to let it go. And in Western cultures, we don't have great we don't have a great culture of grief, or we you know we don't have great uh, ways of dealing with it. Uh, you know, we don't have ritual around it and in, uh, in the way that they do in a lot of other parts of the world. So I think it's particularly tough. Yeah. I am such a fan of organizations who have really learned to create ritual around mourning, grieving, celebrating failure, and then really dissecting failures as well. Like there's, you know, there's some organizations I think do that so well yeah, and do not well. enough not enough organizations i think have really figured out how important that is not just for people's mental health but because i think peter drury is, is the one who first said this and i love the idea that like you know things grow from compost good <laughs> shit grows from compost <laughs> and so if there's not compost <laughs> you know like like there's a benefit to the organization because even better ideas are going to And if you're in these roles of, I I mean, I think this is true of any, but since I, you know, and the show's about marketing, if you're trying stuff, you have to anticipate that. Like, it's not all going to work. I mean, again, to be transparent about the podcast, like, we try all sorts of stuff. And it's so frustrating when it doesn't work. And so, you know, we just have to work hard to be like, well, all right, just learning. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's, I mean, another piece of marketing is everything feels like, you know, it's a sprint. We're going to get to the side. It'll be fantastic. And it'll, you know, and the heavens will part like by next Tuesday. Probably not. One of the hardest things for me to learn as a professional, I'm 50 now, and I think it'll be another 50 years before I've really mastered this, is separating urgent from important. Amen to that. And I think in the social sector and the nonprofit sector, we have a particularly hard time with it because the stakes feel so high and are so high for what we're doing. And so I think it can cause us to put these sometimes just impossible expectations on ourselves that everything 
is going to be so good. It's going to be the thing that changes the world, that saves the children. Like, and so it feels so urgent all the time. And that isn't sustainable. Yeah. And I really, if you're listening, I, I, I really hope that you'll hear this, that it's coming from a place of goodness. There's this pairing of like the issues that folks in the social sector and at social impact organizations are working on, and they are urgent and important both. And so just separating that out and, and, and mission-driven people or purpose-driven people, whichever you prefer, care so deeply about the work. Like there's just a depth of commitment to it. And when you pair those two things, it gets really crunchy. <laughs> it's the only yeah. word I can think of. It gets crunchy and hard. And by the way, that's not, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for staff. So again, looking at you leaders and managers who are listening to this, or maybe this is an episode you share if you're listening and you really wish your leader or manager would do more of this. Of course, now I've said it out loud, so it'd be a little bit uncomfortable, but is to create this environment where it's like, we don't have to do all the everything. Right. And definitely not like today or even this week or even this month, like you got to give it a little breathe, a little breathing room. Yeah. And, and I just want to echo how important it is that that message has to come from the top. If leaders can't separate urgent from important, how on earth can the teams of people that they're developing to be the next leaders, how on earth are they going to learn and be able to do that. I think it's really in, it really incumbent on, on leaders. Otherwise, it's really difficult for a team ever to be able to really know how to, you know, prioritize. Yeah. I mean, this is not exactly the same thing, but whenever I do sort of leadership coaching, one of the questions I ask is, do you send emails on the weekend? And I will say one of the most standard responses, you know where I'm going with this, is I'll say, well, yeah, yeah. But I do, but I tell my staff that I don't expect them to. <laughs> and inevitably, I just sort of look at them for a bit and I'm like, no, like, I mean, that's just not the way I get, I get, I get that they, they probably really mean that, but that's super confusing to folks. And, you know, inevitably they're going to, you know, if your boss emails you at 8 a.m. on Saturday, you're not going to be like, I'll get you on Monday. Super busy. You know, yeah, that's. Oh, that takes somebody who is very sure of themselves um, and their place in the world and all the rest of it to do that. Most of us will be like, ah, you know, even if you wait a day, it's like, okay, I can't take it anymore. That modeling of behavior is tough. And actually, you know, I also get that I have clients who work a lot on the weekends. It's a really productive time for them. And they're like, so I don't want, I'm like, well, just there's that feature in Outlook. I mean, any email system you're using where you can send it, you can have it go at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. or whatever on Monday. Yeah, you can do all the everything and just send it, you know, schedule it to send on Monday if if that's going to be part of your culture. And by the way, if you're creating a culture where folks are expected to work on the weekends, well, okay, you know, people need to recharge. So I can't really say I'm super behind that, but at least be transparent because that's kind. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think, you know, part of this is that context always matters. Always. So if you're talking about conversations between executives, between people who are power peers in the organization over the weekend, that might be one thing, right? It might, that that's, that's part of the trade-off. You want to be an executive in this organization. Here's what you need to know. This was true at the Bar Association. Here's what you need to know. You're on 24-7. There is no time off, right? Like you can take time off, but you have to be available <laughs> during your time off. If you're at an executive level, that's an expectation. That is different than how you're communicating with people 
who are, you know, if you're in a hierarchical organization, you have people who are subordinate to you in power, then it is extremely important that you don't do things like say, I'm going to send you a message at night, but don't feel compelled until tomorrow. Just like you mentioned, I actually think that's abusive. And it took me a long time to learn this, but it's abusive because you are setting somebody up for a situation in which they cannot win. They respond to you right away. There can be, you know, um, consequences for that. I told you not to respond until morning. Why are you responding right away? This oh, person oh, is a brown noser, yeah. right? Um, or if you actually follow the instructions and don't respond till the morning, then, you know, then you have just as much risk of, mm, yeah, they really just see this as a job. And in the nonprofit sector, I think that's especially true. We have this judgment about people who put up, you know, Boundaries, boundaries between personal and professional life. We think like, this is mission-driven work. You should be breathing this if 365 days a year, like all the time. Do you not really, is this just a job to you? As if that's horrible. Something be just a job. It's so, so important. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. If it really is the culture of the organization or even more than culture, if it happens to be the work of the organization is such that communication is going to happen all the time. I have friends who work in global organizations yeah, and so yeah. at any time, you know, your, your clients on the other side of the globe, it is their business day and they're communicating with you. And so there can be a real blurring or if it's the, the nature of the work that you do, if you're in, I don't know, healthcare and, you know, in some way that could, you know, demand that stuff happens. Yeah. Or, you know, therapists who will take calls from clients and, because they need immediate attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you make that stuff known, make that be clear about those expectations, talk about those expectations so that people can come into it in a way that's, you know, like fully come into it, knowing that that's what they're coming into, but you can't change the game on people. I, I, I will say, I feel I know far too many organizational leaders who have found all of the right language to talk about the importance of self self-care and I value your personal time and I want you to be a whole person. And so I'll never expect these things, but then the behavior doesn't, doesn't match that. And that is just a recipe for, I, like I said, I, I think it's abuse. Definitely a recipe for burnout, M- mass confusion, burnout. Yeah. I feel at, like where I want to go next. I, I know that we need to wrap this up. <laughs> Where I want to go next is to talk about the difference between like self-compassion and self-care. We're just going to have to table it for another conversation, but it's so important. They're not the same thing. You can self-care yourself all day. And if you don't have self-compassion, you're just kind of painting your toenails, mm-hmm. which isn't bad per se. Anyway, I think that, that those are used synonymously and that they're quite different and that matters for leadership and, and for sustaining in the work. Okay, I feel like we've covered off on a lot of a lot of t- topics, since like uh, some of them maybe doesn't all feel uplifting to folks. They're like, "Oh my gosh!" So I, I end every interview. I think I warned you. I don't know by asking guests what inspires you and what motivates you, because inspiration, the root of the word, means to breathe in, and motivation is about action. So we need both. We need the breath to take action. Mm-hmm. What a great question. No, I don't think you told me that in advance. So you're really going to get sort of off the cuff. But I would say, first, I'm, I am sorry. If people listen to this interview and I, and I brought them down, that certainly is not my intent. For me, the first thing I think of when I think inspiration is right now, young adults coming into their 
their professional life. I am so inspired by the generations coming after me. <laughs> I so agree with that. I'm I'm thinking of all my students right now and oh my god, they're oh, they're amazing. Yeah, I kind of miss teach lately I've really been missing teaching because of that, because of how much I learn from people who are who are, you know, sort of just coming into their career at the, you know, the early stages of their career. I think we have so much to learn from them. I feel like, you know, I think of Gen Z, so I think of the folks coming through college now in grad school, very, you know, maybe in their first job or first job or two, they've just been forged in fire. You know, if we think of the last two decades and kind of some of the life experiences that people have been through and their perspective on the world and their innovative ideas, and they just seem so less sort of boxed in than I feel like my generation and the generations before me were. And so I, I'm constantly inspired in watching them and learning from them. And so anytime that I'm feeling worried down or crappy, there's a handful of young, you know, professionals that I, pay attention to what they're doing. I look at what they're saying. I listen, you know, I listen to them. I follow them because it gives me a whole lot of hope. I think your other question was about motivation. Mm -hmm. Is that right? What motivates me? Mm -hmm. If I were to be brutally honest, Erica, what motivates me is the fact that even my pajama pants are tight right now. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I mean. I'm so intrigued by where you're going with this, Megan. (laughs) As you said, there's a difference between self-care and self-compassion. So I, you know, the beginning of this pandemic, work from home, for for my wife and I, it started back in January, not in March, when the rest of you started experiencing it. We were, you know, on the other side of the globe when we started experiencing the impacts of um, what would soon become a pandemic. So we've been into this for quite a few months now. But when we first all kind of got locked down at home, I gave myself permission to do whatever I needed to, to cope, to get through. In those early days, I was very worried about my parents who are elderly and live on the other side of the continent. I was worried about whether my wife was going to lose her job, about whether people we love were going to get sick. We, you know, there were people in our, in our, in our life who were really kind of in the line of fire, if you will. And I was really stressed and I'm somebody who I I really like to be active and I try to eat healthy and I tend to have a lot of rules for myself. And I decided you have marathon under your belt to prove it. I, yeah. And I had, you know, at the very beginning of this, I was about to run a marathon too. (laughs) I went scheduled March 7th and I let, I gave myself permission to let go of rules. Like I really did. Like, oh, good for you know, you. forget it. Like I'm not going to have kale for lunch. I want a brownie. And so I would go downstairs and I would bake a sheet of brownie and eat a whole bunch of brownies and be okay with it. I let myself just be okay with that's what I needed to do. And then we started worrying about the restaurants in our neighborhood and the cafes that we really love, the places we go regularly. We're like, mm-hmm. they know our name when we walk through the door. And so we started getting like lots of takeout and eating these sandwiches and tubs of ice cream from my favorite place down the street. And I just gave myself permission to do all of that. And I feel great about that. And then I hit this point where I'm like, well, that's interesting because all of my like (laughs) stretchy pants are suddenly tight. Like, how did that happen? So then it became just this reminder of like, 
it's okay to give yourself permission to do what you need to do, but then ultimately you got to come back to but what's really important to you for the long haul and kind of come back to what are, you know, what are those guidelines for your life? So for me, it was like my, my shrinking pajama pants was like this reminder of like, yeah, at like at one point, you know, at, at a certain point here, I am happier when I'm eating pretty well and I'm running a lot and I'm not doing those things. So there's, there's this remind, yeah, this is kind of a reminder, like, huh, well, I'm going to pay more attention to that. I'm going to be more mindful now. So my tight, oh, my tight oh my pajama gosh. pants are my motivation. <laughs> I was going to mention this woman before, but I'm going to mention her now, which is Katie Strino. And she's a fashion influencer. She is what is referred plus size, which I'm not happy about that term, that term. Nor, nor is she. By the way, oh my gosh, her Instagram is sheer genius. So she does a lot of the like, here's a celebrity wearing a look and here's me rocking that look. And by the way, I got it for a lot less. And here's how it looks, you know, when you're not a size zero or two. And then, and then she started doing, so if you look for hashtag make my size, I could honestly spend all day on this. So she has just this talk about being your true self, radically you, and so sweet in the whole doing of it. She so she goes to you know just ordinary stores and then she tries on their biggest size, which is usually a twelve ish. Actually, the name of her blog I think is twelve ish or some something like that. Anyway, so she tries it on and she takes pictures of herself trying these things on and she's a size eighteen or something. So a lot of the machine, you know, she's like, I can't even get my look. My you know my arm doesn't even fit into leg hole. But she has this way of doing it that isn't like defensive. There's no malice. There's just nothing negative about it. It's just like I love your clothes. I would love to wear your clothes. Thank you. And so not surprisingly, she has this massive following. I, I think if I was to channel my inner, inner Katie right now, if I may, she would be like, maybe you just need different pajama bottoms. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> just fair, I would love to check her. I, I will absolutely check her out. We'll put it all in the show notes too for folks. Cause man, she is so much goodness. She is so much goodness. I love her. I love it. She inspires me. Conversation. I, I have two words just to say, just like for so many years, you've inspired and, and motivated me. Like, and I can't even talk about how many different ways and, and all of it. So to have time with you, it's been a while. And this is really, really, really been a treat. Thank you. Well, the feeling is quite mutual. And this was a joy. <laughs> and I'm very excited for your podcast, which is a huge success and is going to continue to be a huge success. I, I hope so. I mean, my deep hope is that people will start thinking like it's genuine. The whole thing is to think differently about marketing so you can do marketing differently. And that's not just a little thingy dingy that I wrote, which I like, I feel like we are in a time where sure we want to get back to normal and we get to, we get to say what's going to be normal and that marketing can be a force for good and it can really mess up a bunch of stuff and it can mess up the people doing it. And so, you know, I hope people listen and they, they, they have a little mind shift and who knows where it'll go. But thank you. Listeners, if you want to continue the conversation, I do. I, as you can tell, I like literally and, and have on occasion talked to Megan McNally all day. If you would like to keep the conversation going, hop on over to the Marketing for Good Facebook group and we will continue the conversation there. Do good, be well, and we will see you next time.
Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening and thanks for making our world a better place.